Hi, Nicholas Vince here. Today on the Chattering Hour, I'm joined by our very special guest, a lady I've admired for many years, Alice Krieger. We talk about her over 40-year career, which includes highlights such as Ghost Story with Fred Astaire and Douglas Fairbanks Jr., Star Trek First Contact, Chariots of Fire, and her recent psychological thriller, She Will. We talk about those and so very much more. Up next on the Chattering Hour, Alice Krieger. And we're back with Alice Krieger. Alice is an award-winning actor and is also a writer and producer of films such as Jail Caesar. She's worked closely with her husband, Paul Schoolman, on stage and film, and she shows no sign of stopping. Let's get to it. Alice, thank you very much indeed for joining me here this evening. A great pleasure. <laughs> So I wanted to take you right back to the very beginning, if I may, um, all the way back to South Africa, where you were born and grew up. What was a typical day like for you as a kid? As a child? Yes. Um, well, I was born in the Galhai Desert, which was a, is a, a, a magical place. Um and we lived in, a, my father was the doctor, or one of them, who if, effectively was the flying doctor who flew right. to patients, you know, far-flung farmers in the desert, and um, as well as treating patients or, or people who lived in the town. And rather like the Nile runs through the Sahara, the Orange River runs through this part of the Kalahari. Right. It's it's a very wide, muddy river. Um, it was a source of endless joy to us, um, because many of the houses had irrigation furrows that came off the river um, to irrigate right. the gardens and whatever vegetables and fruit. And the the, the irrigation furrows were an unending joy. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> to swim in them and sail little whatnots in them. And we had a dam um, that occasionally got fish from the river that came in through the, the, the furrow into the right. dam. And in this dam, my brothers taught me to dive before they could teach me to swim. So they'd have, I would dive into the middle and they'd have to come and fish me out. Anyway, so. We also had a farm in the Kalahari, um, and we used to go to that at weekends. And it was truly a very magical place. It's a red desert, so the sand is the color of terracotta. Oh, wow. And um, it doesn't rain very often. Um, but when it does rain, the desert is transformed into whole sections of it into a carpet of a sort of sulfur yellow. 
And these are tiny little flowers that are beautiful, very fragile, last for three or four days. And you can come back a month later and they've turned into thorns, the most horrible thorns to trip and fall into, as I did on occasion. (laughs) But my day when I was at of school age, I suppose, which was because of where my birthday fell, I suppose I went to school when I was about four and a half. I must have gone to kinder school, kindergarten school, Mm. because I know I once got lost and they couldn't find me because I'd given my name as the name of my kindergarten teacher. So I was rather besotted by my kindergarten teacher. Anyway, so I must have gone to kindergarten. But because it was so hot, the the children went to school. School started at 6.30 in the morning. Right. So that we could be home by noon and out of uh, who had air conditioning. Mm-hmm. Um, we So we could be out of the heat of the day by noon. Um, and I used to be woken, I suppose, at quarter to six and fed breakfast and have my hair braided and half asleep I'd be bundled into the car <laughs> and go to school. But it was a very, very joyful, incredibly privileged right. childhood. Right. So, uh, did you were you watching films as a kid? I can remember. Don't forget, we had no television. Right. Television arrived in South Africa the year after I left. Ah. It was because of the nationalist government, which was in power. Censorship was quite pervasive. I can remember seeing two films. In my childhood, I must have been taken to see cartoons on a Saturday afternoon. But I went with my brothers and my parents. I don't know what possessed them, but they took us to see the bridge over the River Kwai. I must have been six or seven. And when we got to the point where one of the prisoners of war was put in an oven, I don't know if you remember. I stood up and said, I think you have to take me home now. So um, (laughs) my mother had to leave with me. (laughs) And the the other film I can remember seeing was Davy Crockett. And I I also asked to leave Davy Crockett because um, there was a – they used to hunt jackal the farmers, because the jackal killed the sheep. And I found that enormously upsetting. Mm -hmm. And there was something in Davy Crockett that made me think they were about to hunt something. And and I stood up and told my brothers to take me home, so they had to. But that's all I can remember. Those are – and then we went to live in Johannesburg because my father requalified. And he was working at a big training hospital in Johannesburg and live theatre for the first time was a possibility. So I can remember being taken to see Showboat and My Fair Lady. My mother loved musicals. All the musicals that 
ever aired in Johannesburg or aired were staged over an 18-month period because that's how long we were there. I, I was taken to see them all and ballet because I started to do ballet when I was nine when we right. left. Um, so all the ballet that happened. I, so my life changed completely in terms of culture, right. what, 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 you know, what was available. I was balleting my socks off and going to musicals and Swan Lake and Nutcracker and everything. Right, right. So when did you get bitten by the acting bug? I think I was bitten by the dancing bug. Ah. I wanted to be a ballerina. Um, I don't think I quite would have made the grade. I think I did. I think I was so busy acting that no one noticed what my feet were doing. <laughs> um, but, but of course, we did little shows every at the end of each year. I suppose we did. We put on a show, the ballet school, right? Um, and I went to ballet every afternoon, five days a week. Um, and then this, the the secondary school that I was at. Um, put on a play every year. And um, the first play I was cast in was The Anchor in Taming of the Shrew. And then I think the next year, so inappropriately, we did a restoration comedy. I mean, what did children in South Africa know about restoration comedy? But anyway... Mm -hmm. um, and then I was asked by a local amateur group to play Juliet. So I was 14, and I think I savaged Shakespeare, but I was the right age. I think that was the only box that really got ticked, <laughs> <laughs> that I filled the age requirement. But it, it, was, it, was, uh, it was a wonderful experience. Right. Right. Um, as much the camaraderie and and the, the doing of it together, right? But right. I I was intent upon becoming a psychologist, which is what my mother was. Ah, and I was fascinated by it. Um, and I wanted to be a clinical psychologist, which is what she was. So we decided I should go to a university that did a very um, experimental Skinnerian black box undergrad. So that was what I did. Right. And this, I happened to have one free credit. And this university had just started a drama department. So my parents, to their subsequent great regret, said, well, why don't you just do a year of drama? It'll be really good for you. And I'm afraid that was that. Um, I by the time I reached my third year, I decided I I wanted to tr try acting. So I did an honors degree in acting, having done three years. I then did another year and auditioned for acting school in England. In fact, I auditioned at the end of my third year, the end of the BA, and got turned down by everyone. Well, I auditioned for Central and for RADA. Right. 
Right. And was turned down. Right. And I went back and did the honours degree. And they let me write early so that I could come. My mother, God bless her. My father was bitterly opposed to the whole thing, simply because he was fearful that it Mm. was a very rocky, uncertain life that none of them knew anything about. They were all lawyers or doctors or academics. And this was... I mean, there was one branch of the family that were artists, but they were second cousins. You know, they weren't really part of our life. Um, so it was it was purely out of concern for me. Um, but my mother believed that one should be allowed to try to do what what you really, really wanted to do. And so, God bless her, she paid for me to come back to England a second time, and I auditioned at every drop because I was here for three months over the audition season, and I auditioned at every school, and amazingly enough, I got accepted at all of them. And I decided to go to Central because it was in London, and I had been in a very small university town. I had no idea how what a shock to the system London would be. But I chose London. And um, I chose the ILEA because the the Central, which was an inner London education authority, Mm. because you didn't have to have rich folks to go to it. You could get get a a county wand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I I just – I. I don't know why, but I just thought this would be a good thing to do. Right. And indeed it was. And it right. was a, a wonderful three years. Right. Um, so, that, so that was right. it. And then, right. then, then, then I was very fortunate to start working pretty much right away. What was your um, first? I was going to ask what your first professional acting job was then. I was cast in a play for today um, called Happy, The Happy Autumn Fields. And I think I had one line to say. It was Edwardian and it was set, it was shot in Shropshire. And I utterly fell in love with the English countryside because we, we shot in September August, September, and it was right. so beautiful. Right. Um, and then I did a play for nothing, literally, at Jackson's Lane, a French a, a Quebecois play. And then through the agency of a fellow student at Central, I got cast in Chariots of Fire. And and had it not been for her, I, I, I wouldn't have been. And that started, um, was a sort of springboard. Right, right. Which I shall be eternally grateful. Because not only did it um, become a springboard for work, but I also met my husband. And oh, I spent the whole of Jared in a haze uh, of love. That sounds so, wonderful. 
Yes, it was rather. I, I, yeah, that sounds extraordinary. <laughs> I'm sure. So, I mean, Chariots of Fire got Oscars. Did you get to go to the Oscars? No, I was at the RSC. I was oh. terrified. I was, I was in a field in Stratford, literally chewing my fingers to the bone. I was so frightened. Just because of the attention, or what were you? What were you? Afraid? No, no, just Shakespeare was so daunting. Oh, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, a whole season, and right. I, I two years, and then... right. So, Chariots of Fire is happening. You're doing two years of um, Shakespeare, the Royal Shakespeare Company, and then you get Ghost Story. How did Ghost Story come about? Actually, I did Ghost Story before, oh. uh, before the RSC. Ah, right. <laughs> It was just the way the release pattern worked. Right, right. Um, and Ghost Story, again, was because of Chariots. Um, John Irvin was trying to cast it in L.A., and uh, this is what I'm told, um, apparently felt as if he was getting nowhere. And he flew into London because this is where he lived. Um, it was for Christmas. It was like three days before Christmas, and um, he called as he landed in Heathrow, he called a friend who was a casting director and said to her, Susie Figgis it was, said, I'm, I'm having a hard time casting this role. Have you got any thoughts? And she said, well, as it happens, I saw a film called Chariots of Fire this morning. It's not finished. I was looking at it to see Ian Charlson's work in it because she was casting Gandhi. And she said, there's this, this new actress, you might want to take a look at it. So I don't know if he arranged to see it or if he just called my agent or if Susie called my agent and said, can Alice meet John tomorrow? Here's the script. And those days, they they biked the script over to you. No such thing as email. And um, I read the script and I met him the next morning. It was one of those astonishing things. And he said, yeah, I'd love you to do this, but you need to meet the producers. So the following morning, they put me on a plane to Los Angeles to be driven from LAX up to Santa Barbara to meet the producer because it was two days before Christmas and they were starting to shoot or to rehearse at the end of the first week of January. Um, and it was quite extraordinary being driven from LAX up to Santa Barbara on those four-lane, five-lane highways. I quite simply felt as if I was in the movies because that's how I had experienced Los Angeles was, you know, what I had seen was what I was in the midst mm -hmm. of. And they were so kind to me because I was meant to go home to my family for that Christmas. And so I abandoned the ticket and they bought me, they sent me home and I flew home on Christmas Day and I came back 10 days later to start filming. Um, so it was one of those sort of, I suppose, fairy tale Hollywood kind of whirlwinds. Um, and that, that was off of the back, again, of a casting director and pure chance. Right, right. What's your fondest memory of working on Ghost Story? 
those actors, those remarkable five Hollywood legends, mm. Fred Astaire, Melvin Douglas, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., John Houseman, and Pat Neal. They were extraordinary. They were gallant and they had a lightness and a humor. They were old. They were, you know, Fred Astaire mm. was 82, and yet they had a charm and a lightness um, that was extraordinary. Amazing gift to have been right. given as a, as a, I wasn't young, I was 25 or 20, 25. Um, but I was beginning in the profession and they were an extraordinary example of, mm. of who one would strive to be. You know, as, as a performer, quite mm. aside from the work they did, just their, their graciousness um, was, was unforgettable. Right, right. I wanted to skip 10 years, if I may, and kind of jump forward for another a horror film that you did, which was Sleepwalkers, very different part. Um, and Mick Garris was directing. How did Sleepwalkers come about? I, I would have been sent a script. Um, yeah. And to be absolutely honest, I didn't get the script at all. And I was very uncertain about whether I wanted to, to do it. And Mick said, shall we, you know, shall we meet? And Mick completely sort of transformed my my understanding of the script. And I suddenly understood that it was really a satire of the genre, that Stephen King was having a huge amount of fun. Um, and at that point, it all kind of made sense to me. And... Um, and, and off we went. Um, Did you get to meet Stephen King? Do you know, I was meant to. There was, I, I, I came to set to discuss a scene. It was scheduled that I would come on this particular day because I think it must have been a, a light day for Mick or whatever, but he thought he would have time. And that was the day that Stephen King was being... Um, the guy who looked after the graveyard. Yes, because that was his. And but he was he was one take Stephen. He was in and out before I even got to the location. So I missed my opportunity of meeting him. because uh, uh, I mean you had Clive Barker, Toby Hooper, just Mick yeah. had got everybody in. Yes, <laughs> yeah, for that day. Uh, again, okay, so you weren't quite sure of the script. You kind of got a better handle uh, on the script, apart from missing out on Stephen King. Did, was there any other fond memories of making uh, Sleepwalkers? Um, just, just, I suppose I decided as I was learning it and getting... I mean, obviously, the whole team, you know, yeah. you always learn. You're always given gifts by everyone you're working with. 
um, but a, a, a sort of moment of, of perhaps epiphany or whatever for me as an actor was that as I was learning it, I suddenly decided, I have no idea why, that I would play her as a tragic, heroic figure. Um, as if I were, a, you know, a, a, a character in, in a, you know, Shakespeare, as if I were in Coriolanus. Um, so I went and I bought yards and yards of crimson fabric. And I had a small room that I worked in and I lined the entire room with the crimson fabric. Um, and that was where I learned the role, was sort of in this cocoon of <laughs> blood red. Um, it, but it was just I understood that I could make on film huge gestures if I was completely inside them. Um, and, and that role helped me discover that. Ah, that's, that's extraordinary. I've not heard of that technique before. Well, it's not a technique. It's just, and I don't have a technique. No. I, I, I work, I hope that each role in script will speak to me and tell mm. me how to proceed. I don't have a technique. Ah. Um, not, not one that I always follow. Right. Obviously, there are things that I do. I always know it before I get. I know the whole script before right. I get there. And I've, I've taken the structure apart and put it back together again in terms of the whole and in terms of my character and done that sort of thing. Mm. That mm. I do as a matter of, of course, because it helps me understand. But yeah. what happened after that um, is is stepping into the void and hopefully the character will show me what I need to do. <laughs> I, well, thank you very much indeed for that. I mean, going back to Sleepwalkers, that's, I think you're, that kind of explains to me. I, I watched it this afternoon. Um, oh, really? Oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> <laughs> I've been so I haven't watched it for whenever. It's it well. It, it makes sense now because she is this incredibly tragic figure. She's a woman who's trapped in her house. It seems she lives literally through her son. Um, and a great job by Brian Krause, by the way. Yeah, you know, absolutely. yeah, absolutely entrancing. I'd, I'd seen him on TV doing stuff I'd never seen him in, in film before, but. It absolutely works. That does make a lot of sense now. I understand what you were going for because she's this tragic figure. She's a and, complete. And she's, tra she's trapped in a world that doesn't understand her at all. Mm. Not her own choice. Here she is. And she's imprisoned by misunderstanding and misconception of who and what she is. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's that thing about oh, basically, and actually talks about the police. I think they talk about the police siren, you know, the sound of police sirens driving them onto the next vision. And, they, and I'm mentally thinking pitchforks and flaming torches. Yes, yes. You know, it's it's it is it is beautifully done. 
Now, you had a little bit of prosthetic makeup in that, but something in which you had a great deal of prosthetic makeup, I think, was in was playing the Borg Queen in yeah. Star Trek First Contact. Was uh, Star Trek First Contact, was that your first real experience with a lot of prosthetic makeup? Um, I had quite a lot glued on, actually, in Sleepwalkers. Right. And I had one terribly difficult experience with um, prosthetics prior to that. I had worked in a series called Dream West. All right. With Richard Chamberlain. He played Charles Fremont, who followed, there were two guys who mapped the West, but Fremont kind of elaborated on that and did a much um, a much more detailed exploration of mapping the West. Um, and he was married to a woman called Bess, whose father was a, was a senator, actually, and she was an incredibly bright woman. She was taught, she was educated by her father in the Library of Congress, actually. Very, very bright woman. And... Um, it was an absolute love match, she and Charles. And so we shot this journey of his mapping. So they set off from Richmond, Virginia, and we literally filmed the route that he had done. But by the end of it, you get to the end of their lives. Mm -hmm. And um, I was so encased in old age prosthetics. Now, when would this have been? It was before, it was about 1985 or 86, right. 85 into 86. Right. And they were still using foam, which is kind of solid. It sets, so it's like it's, Mm. This it's about mask. yay thick, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like a mask, yeah. solid mask, yeah, glued onto your face. And I felt like a lizard, I felt like a reptile, I didn't feel like a human at all. It was like just these eyes were peering out of this mask. It was an incredibly distressing experience Be because I felt. As if there was this, you know, as you say, mm. half an inch of solid, I don't even know what the substance was. It's foam latex. Foam latex. Yes, yeah, foam, la foam latex. Between you and and the character and what the, char the character and the audience, the character and the other character, it was, and, and one's face was imprisoned. It was, I was immobilized underneath this, layer of foam latex. It was a very shocking experience because I had had prosthetics and ghost story mm. and Dick Smith was a oh, master yeah. at yeah. it. But it was very brief and and it was shot in such, you know, it was with flesh falling off me and you, I, I, was, I was a surreal apparition. I wasn't meant to be a real person, mm, mm. whereas in Dream West I was. So when I came to Sleepwalkers, 
I was not sleepwalkers, uh, ghost, uh, ball queen. Yeah. Um, I was immensely grateful to Scott Wheeler who created it because he, he, he invited me in to look at the maquette, which is a little sculpture they make out of clay. They sculpt the, the head. Mm. Um, and he said, what do you think? What, what, so what would you like to change? And the only thing I wanted to change was that they had draw, he had drawn in eyebrows. And I said, you turn me into Cruella de Vil with those eyebrows. You tie me down to one expression. Can we please get rid of the eyebrows? No eyebrows. Um, and he had to ask permission to do that from you know, the chain up above, chain of command up above. And, they, uh, yeah, they, they weren't fussed one way or another. So they, they, he, he took away the eyebrows. Right. Which gave me my face. Um, and, and I wasn't tied to one expression. Mm. Um, but it was an extraordinary makeup. I, I always describe the role as a collaboration because – you cannot imagine her separate from what she looked like, mm. either the suit or or the makeup. So um, it's it was a collaboration, and it was a, a great gift because by the time it was all on, and they put in the contact lenses, I felt as if I had entered another dimension, you know, as if I yeah. basically, mm. I showed up, they put on the makeup, I checked out and the ball queen arrived. It was a bit like that. <laughs> how, long, how long a makeup was it? How long did you have to spend in the chair? Um, well, we, we worked an 18-hour day, so there was an hour for lunch. It took an hour to put on the suit. So it must have taken seven hours to do the makeup to mm, begin with. Yeah. No, 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 no. Because it took two hours to take off. So we worked for nine hours. We prepped for for nine hours. And then we worked for nine hours. So I had an hour for lunch. So it was eight hours. So two hours to take it off. An hour to put on the suit. So it took about five hours to put on the makeup. Right, 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 right. Extraordinary. I, I enjoyed that performance immensely. And... I want to kind of bring us up to two more recent films, uh, if I may, and that's Gretel and Hansel, and uh, a more recent one, She Will. Now, they're uh, they're years apart. I mean, uh, well, actually, Gretel and Hansel came out in twenty twenty. They're only a year apart, right? Yeah, I shot Gretel and Hansel at the end of twenty eighteen, right? And She Will at the end of twenty nineteen. Right, right. Now, the, looking at the two of them, um, they kind of got a similar theme in that they involve witchcraft. And you're playing a witch in both of those effects, kind of if effectively. What's your view of those two films in terms of what they're saying about the female experience? I, I loved playing both of the roles, um, and I think they're both 
extremely interesting films. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought to look at the Hansel and Gretel story mm-hmm. from Gretel's point of view was was a, a, a wonderful stroke of imagination. Um, and also to look at it from the witch's point of view. Well, the story is really Gretel's journey. And in the course of charting Gretel's journey, uh, the film explores how Holder, the witch, became what she became. Mm-hmm. And it's about how you choose to use your power as a as an individual and as a woman. Um, and and Holder's journey, I thought, was heartbreaking and and fascinating to play. And I was just incredibly moved by by Sophia Lillis's performance as as Gretel. Mm. Um, and and this idea that she discovers in the course of being abandoned and out in the woods, she discovers her power and finally is on the cusp of choosing how she would use it. Mm. She's, she is offered great dark power. And I don't believe that she chooses to go down that path, but you don't know. Mm. It's, implied that she doesn't but it's a a very beautiful enigmatic ending yes to um a a a very disturbing piece of work yes yes there were moments beautifully achieved piece of work yes because this is oz perkins who's directing anthony perkins son was this one of oz's early films as a director or he um no he he'd done several others mm. um black coat's daughter or he's done right. s- several others right all right. equally um unusual right all equally um unexpected point of view ah. from from a filmmaker's point of view right um all challenging and interesting. Um, he, he was very influential in in a rewrite of of the script of Ansel and Gretel, as far right. as I understand. Right, and right. His use of language mm. is quite unique. Yes. Rather in the way, uh, do you, you must know a, a showrunner called David Milch. I Done. He wrote. He wrote Deadwood. Ah, oh, right, right, yes. Right. So he was the writer of Deadwood. Right. So right. He was the creator, and and he not a word was written that he didn't. Um, uh, yeah. um right. And he has a very unique use of language. Right. And similarly, does Osgood. Right. Um, but both in his, in who he is as an individual, and in mm-hmm. terms of of what he writes. Um, right. Very right. challenging, very stimulating. Yes. Yes. And, and I, you don't often get it in film. I mean, no. that complexity and density 
of imagery. Mm. Extraordinary, beautiful, beautiful moments. And there's the one where the younger version rises from the pool of, we're not quite sure what it is coming into, the, but it's just that. It's absolutely stunning. Now, somebody who's definitely, who's the their first film, and that's Charlotte Colbert and um, She Will, uh, which I had the great joy of seeing uh, just recently. How did that come about? The role? Yes. How did you get involved? I think they couldn't get the person they originally wanted. <laughs> because <laughs> she was otherwise engaged. So I lucked out. Um, now, I don't know if that's a story. That <laughs> <laughs> well, all I can tell you is having attended the premiere and talking to people, the production company, your producer, Sarah, what everyone kept on telling me was how much of a trooper you are. Because you were filming again in really in winter, not wearing a great deal, um, <laughs> and, and however how much everybody loved you and so so I was. However, you got the part. It really fascinating film. Did you just get a script? Or yes. Yeah. No, bless her. You know, nowadays um, mostly. Producers, studios, networks, directors, they want to see the performance. Mm. Boom. So you put yourself on tape. You do your best in the most wrong of circumstances, in front of a white wall. You try to deliver as close as you can get to what it conceivably could be. But Charlotte just wanted to meet me. God bless her. And, and I was enchanted by her from the moment I laid eyes on her. Um, she is, I don't know if you met her. Yes, briefly, is, yes. She's um, glorious. She's, uh, uh, you know, an extraordinary imagination. But a, but a sweetness and a lightness of spirit and a generosity, she's quite remarkable. Right, right, right. And again, what what's your kind of view about what the film is about and what it says about a woman's position in the world? Interestingly, I don't I don't think of her as a witch at oh. all. Um I don't actually think she wanted vengeance. She wanted the truth to oh. be told. She's very clear about it. Mm. Um, yes, yes. But the power and the spirit of the burned women give her the agency to be able to confront him mm. with what he did. Mm. I spoke to a very dear friend who had breast had had breast cancer and had actually had a lumpectomy, not a mastectomy right. and she didn't know the story but she gave me um an image that that became kind of central which was she said you gotta rise like a phoenix from the ashes apropos of what she had gone through um 
you know, part of her breast cut away, the, the, all the difficulty, um, what she had encountered in the process. Um, and it was just the perfect, if you had a single sentence, mm. that, was, that was it. Mm. But it's, it's a very interesting, complex piece of work. Yes. And it, it cannot be pigeonholed in any kind of box no. or genre. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's one of those rare films. And I think um, Gretel and Hansel was one. And there was another film that I was in called The Institute Benjamenta. I don't know if I you know it. I, no, I don't. Watch it. It's your in for a treat by the Brothers Quay. It's black and white, film as in poetry, as opposed to film as in prose. That's how I think of that piece. But all of these films, somehow they are the content and the way in which they're accomplished visually and, and just the way the story is told are a perfect, ma- a perfect fusion of meaning and form. And it's, it's incredibly exhilarating to be part of something that is so complete um, in terms that every physical thing is part of telling the story, not just accidental, not there by hop and chance, but everything is contributing, every element of design. Um, it's just, it's fabulous when the story is told so completely. I, I really look forward to that. I have to admit, I'm only halfway through Ghost Story. And I saw Ghost Story when it first came out. I remember it very clearly. I remember very clearly remembering seeing it at the cinema. Um, I haven't seen it since I, since I did the ADR for it, however many years ago. <laughs> Do you, do you often, do you sometimes look at your old films, you've work you've done in the past or is you are so busy? I would imagine you've got. I, 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 I get too upset watching my work because all I see is what I, what I failed to achieve. So right. I, 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 you have to go back sometimes when you're replacing dialogue in the mm-hmm. post-production process, you see parts of it. Things like Gretel and Hansel and She Will and Institute Monumenta, I, I'll see the whole thing. Mm. Try not to. I certainly don't do it more than once. If I've done it once, that's generally enough. Yeah. Yeah. I, I presume you never read reviews. Sometimes I do. Oh. It's not a good idea um, because, uh, yeah, Um it's a really bad idea in the theatre mm-hmm. to read reviews. Not yeah. such a bad idea in film because it's long gone. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but uh, theatre is uh, yeah. one has to resist the temptation. Yes, <laughs> makes, <laughs> makes perfect sense. Yeah. Makes a great deal of sense. Um, there were so many things I'd love to have spoken to you about, and um, in fact, that Malcolm McDowell is in. She will. And what a joy. <laughs> what a joy! <laughs> did you uh, did you know Malcolm before you worked with him yeah. on the? 
and then, <laughs> then I, I, uh, I was in awe of him as as an actor, and um, to actually work with him was, I, you know, I my I stood outside the trailer before I met him with my heart pounding in my chest at the thought of. Of, I was just so shy and just so um, so nervous at the thought of meeting him. That, um, but what a joy! What a funny, dear, brilliant guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've known him for a few years now. He's a great really? friend. Yes, I'm lucky yeah. enough through Chris Rowe. Um, yes. I've met him a few times. We've become friends. Uh, he's yeah. He really is. He's just absolutely fascinating to listen to. I've not had the joy of working with him, but I would love to one day. Um, and, and something that I love about him is that he appears to have absolutely no filter at all. I, it, is su- it is so mesmerizing, um, quite wonderful. Yes. <laughs> and, and he's like, oh, okay. Um, yeah, all right. I'll do. I'll I'll process that, Malcolm. And, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. We're nearly at the end. Um, I would like to uh, round out the interview with the questions I ask my guests, uh, which is the luggage in the crypt. So the idea is that whatever you you know perceive the afterlife to be, but we're going to give you a huge great pyramid. You can take anything you want. And it's a it's an invidious question. I know it's an invidious question to say what what particular film might you take? Oh my goodness! Into the afterlife. Yes. I have no idea. <laughs> no idea. Um, no idea. Okay. I'm sorry, but I. That's. Absolutely fine, Alice. You know, just the idea that I could actually be able to watch movies in the afterlife is so is such a boggling idea <laughs> that I'm really protesting that. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely fine. I won't worry about asking you about a book or a. Oh, but I, I don't know. Piece of music. Is there any music? Any any music you might like to listen to? There's a great deal. Am I allowed mm. to take? Well, yeah. Just I'll. I would take everything that Beethoven had ever written. Mozart as well. Um, some Bach. Um, the the Hallelujah chorus. Um, and, you know, probably a lot of Bob Dylan. Um, Leonard Cohen, the Beatles. That that kind of firmly puts me <laughs> in a particular place, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that's a it's a wonderfully wide ranging choice. It does. I must, I must I must tell you that I owe that to my to having been educated in music by my husband. Because ah. um, I grew up largely without. My mother listened to musicals, but that was about the music we had. We didn't listen to music, but uh, my husband has opened this wonderful world of, of every kind of music for me. Right. So, yeah. Wow. wow. 
Well, as I say, I mean, that, those are wonderful choices. And I, I can, as I say, NVIDIA's question about films or books or, or anything. Do you, uh, we mentioned that She Will um, was released, well, it was at the, the British, um, sorry, the London Film Festival. Uh, when I saw it. Have you anything else that's coming out soon or recent projects? Um, I, I, my, my character, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this, oh. so maybe I shouldn't. Okay. Um, I don't know. To uh, you know, yeah. there are all these rules now about what you can and can't mention. Yes. And I, don't, I don't want to infringe any of them. Right. Okay. To ask, answer your question about a book. Mm. Um, there's there's some very extraordinary Taoist writing translated by a man called Cleary. I would probably take that. Okay. A whole a whole bunch of 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 the Taoist texts, and I would probably take um, a, a two volumes by. Paramahansa Yogananda about it's an interpretation of the Gospels, which is a very, very, but but within um, the tradition of um, a yogi and um, his disciples. It's not a Christian text. It's a philosophical. Um, it's an extraordinary two volumes that um, ah. uh, I think I think the Taoists and and this this these this treatise um, by this Indian yogi in relation to the the Christian Gospels is mm. very very interesting um, thing to take with me on that particular journey. On that particular journey. <laughs> 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 well, actually. There is one question very briefly before we tie up that suddenly struck me. Is there, is there a part that you would particularly like to play? Or is there a project you'd particularly like to see to come to fruition that you're perhaps working on? Or is there any things like, you know what, I, there's just that. I'd like to have a crack at that. Um. I think I'm too old for most of the Shakespearean roles I would have liked to have played, but I would have been very, very frightened if I had taken them on. Um, so maybe it's for the best. Um, and I, I work with my husband on on the work that he develops mm. and will direct. And so there are there are two projects that are. Um, one is ready to roll, and the other one is is very close. Right. And so we'll be embarking on taking those into the world very right. soon. And I I dearly hope they come to fruition. Right, right, okay. Well, sorry, I am suddenly rem- speaking about age and Shakespeare. I am sub- suddenly reminded of Judy Dench and Ian McKellen doing Romeo and Juliet when they were. Much older than the really? characters they yes, and I'm trying. And this was probably I mean it was it was probably about twenty uh, fifteen years ago possibly, no. but but really? they what I'm, on stage yes, 
Yes, they 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 did. Yeah, they played it much later than you than you would expect. I swear, I'm not making this up. I, 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 I will double check and I will Google. I am not making this up, but I have such a clear impression. I never got to see them, but I remember this very clearly and just saying, you know what? What you know. You know, you're talking about theatre where boys play girls. Why not just say? And what I love about Shakespeare is that you can do these things because it just gives you a completely different view of humanity and the myriad things that we are as human beings. I swear I haven't made this up. Sometimes I do dream these things, but I'm pretty certain. <laughs> I, I remember vividly, I didn't see it at the other place, but they filmed it. Um, McKellen and Jen Dench doing the Scottish play. Ah, right. Perhaps that's what I was, but I... That was, that was extraordinary. Right, right. I'm very, very interested to see Francis McDormand doing the Scottish play, which is... About it's it's yes yeah I believe she will probably figure prominently in the Oscar race yes but it will be just very interesting to yes. see as well yes yes absolutely you're right I mean that play takes on um it its scope is such that depending on the age you play it. It takes on whole different layers of re- resonance because it could mm. be played very young, or it could be played, you know, someone in their late fourth, mm-hmm. early fifties. You know, mm. it's it's got that much. I mean, as you say, that is the wonder of Shakespeare that he's written in such sort of timeless way, mm. and such iconic characters that they there's enormous latitude mm. in how you interpret them, how you inhabit them. Yes. Yes. That is a wonderful note to finish on, I think. This has been lovely. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dallas. And good luck with all everything else. And uh, I look forward to seeing some of those come to fruition. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Take care. My thanks again to Alice Krieger. What a fascinating woman she is, and I really enjoyed talking to her. Join me again in two weeks for some more chattering, and in the meantime, stay safe and well. The Chattering Hour, hosted by Nicholas Vince, is produced by Chris Rowe Management and Tea Time Productions. Producer Chris Rowe, with production support from Amanda Rome West. Composer Kevin McLeod, copyright Tea Time Productions.